Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction. My name is Philippe Nuren, and I'm joined as always by Fergal Armstrong. So in the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're going to talk about the range of drugs that one can be addicted to. So Fergal, this is a massive topic and quite broad. I'll let you start us off. What are the range of drugs that one can be addicted to and how would you classify such a broad area, which can be quite daunting to a lot of us? Yeah, it's, it's really important to understand the, that, that range because um, every formal uh, drug history uh, needs to know that range. And, that, and this is also exemplified in the DUDIP tool, you know, the Drug Use Disorders Identification Tool, where you've got to ask the same questions for every drug that the person uses. And so if you if you forget to ask a patient, do you use X or Y drug? Well, then you've completely missed the boat potentially. So you do need to understand the range. And there are various ways of thinking about that. So you can think about the uppers, the diners, the party drugs, the hallucinogens. You can uh, you think about the legal drugs, the illegal drugs. Or you can use the, the list of drugs that are specifically diagnosable as a substance use disorder, according to DSM five. So I suppose if we if we go through that, so you know, Philippe, and what would be your understanding of the uppers? You know, what are so uppers to you? Uppers would be substances like amphetamine, methamphetamine, and cocaine. Yeah. I think those would be yeah. the classic uppers. Uh, yeah. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, the stimulants, basically. Yeah, absolutely. So those would be the illegal uppers. And what about? Um, what about the uh, the less illegal? I don't want to say legal, but you know we've got we've got plant up, plant derived uppers, including you know uh, caffeine. We've also got um, cathedulus cather, uh, giving us cat. We've got cocaine from the coca erythroxylum plant, and we've got ephedra, which is otherwise known as ma hung. These are all plant derivatives. They're all stimulants. Um, and they're all legally available in certain parts of the world. Um, so, I, you know, I would also think of those. But, but certainly, yeah, the prototypical stimulants like methamphetamine, they're, they're definitely illegal. And you, using that classification, regarding the prescribed drugs that one could use as well, I guess we've got opiates, benzodiazepines, yeah. and yeah. substances along the lines where people can get dependent, such as quetiapine, pregabulin, and some other yeah. legal stimulants like dexamphetamine. Yeah which are used yeah. to treat um, ADHD. So I guess yeah. that would fall in that prescribed classification you were talking about. Yeah. So we got the prescribed uppers and the prescribed diners. So, you know, as you yes. said, the opioids, the benzos, the gabapentanoids, the sedative antidepressants, the anticholinergic drugs, which are all mis potentially misused. And then the prescribed uppers. So, you know, dexamphetamine, lisdexamphetamine, Vyvanse. Um, these are all... These are all potentially abusable. And also, you know, when I was when I was a young junior doctor, some of my ENT uh, senior colleagues were using cocaine spray for uh, ENT procedures. I'm not sure if it's still used at the moment, but yeah, they, they, they had some cocaine in the uh, in the ENT office. <laughs> it is a it is a potent vasoconstrictor. So I think in in cases uh, yeah. of epistaxis or you know severe yeah. bleeding of the nose, it it, it does do the yeah. job uh, back in the day anyway. Like you, I'm not quite yeah. sure if it's used much these so days. So it's also not only is it a vasoconstrictor, it's also an, a local anaesthetic. Yeah, so it's a sodium yeah. channel blocker. So you can literally get you can kill two birds with one stone. You can shrink down the mucosa of the nose and you can numb it up ready for surgery. Sure. Yeah. With with regards to 
uh, the legal medication, oh, sorry, the legal substances, we've got alcohol and tobacco. So they're yeah. legal drugs that one can yeah. certainly get dependent to. Definitely, and yeah. what about the, I guess we talked about some of the legal downers. What about the legal, uh, uh, the illegal downers, Virgil, that, uh, that some patients can sometimes get uh, well, upon. I mean, I think I think the prototypical illegal diner is heroin, isn't it? You know, and all yes. of the illegal opioids, uh, you know, the, the synthetic uh, fentanyl derivatives, the, the car fentanyls that are that are being manufactured in, uh, in various parts of the world and imported into Australia. Um, yeah. I'm not sure that there are really many other illegal, non-prescribable diners. I mean, I can you know, can you think of any? Cannabis could probably fall into that category potentially. Yeah, 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 absolutely. That's, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, cannabis. Um, and then we have the the kind of the hallucinogens. So we've got the synthetic hallucinogens, and we've got the naturally occurring hallucinogens. So when we're thinking about um, you know uh, naturally occurring hallucinogens, I think of tree bark. I think of cactus and I think of mushrooms. So, you know, that's that's my kind of order. The big trees, moderate-sized cactus and little tiny mushrooms. And so tree bark reminds us of ayahuasca, which is found in Latin America. Then we have cactus is giving us um, mescaline, which is a synthetic, which is a naturally occurring hallucinogen. And then we've got mushrooms giving us mag magic mushrooms, which, which are giving us psilocybin. And then we have the synthetic hallucinogens, which we can think of as dimethyltryptamine, which I suppose is synthetic DMT. Is the that was known as the business trip because it was very short acting, but it's basically uh, the active ingredient in ayahuasca. But we've also got things like uh, angel dust, so phencyclidine. We've got ketamine. Ketamine is used as a as a dissociative anesthetic in medicine, but it also gives you a, a kind of a, del a dissociative delirium. And um, then we've got the prototypical hallucinogen, which is LSD, lysergic acid diethylamine. Have we missed any other drugs? I'm sure we have, but either way, I think we've provided a pretty exhaustive list of substances we, that one can be dependent on. And the I, list is I just remembered growing. another one. I've just remembered oh. another one. We haven't mentioned GHB. Mm-hmm or the gamma-butyrolactones, GBL, yeah? So GHB is yet another example of an illegal diner. So yes, we, as, um, we've already mentioned uh, opioids, so heroin and all the synthetic fentanyls. Then we, you mentioned cannabis, but we've also got to add GHB to that list. Excellent. I think that's, um, I can't think of any more off the top of my head. There's another way of thinking about these, this classification though, and that's according to the DSM-5. And so it gives us a, a list of drugs uh, to which one can append the diagnosis of a use disorder. So I use a rather rude mnemonic called COCA SHITS to think about this. So C-O-C-A-S-H-I-T-S. -S. So I'll see if I can remember, I'll see if I can repeat that to you. So we've got cocaine, opioids, cannabis, alcohol, stimulants, hallucinogens, inhalants. We haven't talked about inhalants. So glue sniffing or huffing, uh, tobacco and other hypnosedatives. So these are all substances to which one can append a diagnosis of substance use disorder. So going sideways a tiny bit now and mm. talking about prescription medications, because 
that has been something that uh, we've been focusing on in some of the last episodes of Cracking Addiction. Is there a way that you use to identify patients at risk of prescription drug aberrancy or are there any indications in particular that you you are concerned about with regards to prescription drug aberrancy? Yeah, so it's it's a really difficult area, isn't it? To what extent is patient is a patient who presents to you in 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 pain or distress? To what extent are they actually undertreated, or to what extent are they demonstrating features that would be consistent with an addiction or a use disorder? And the, identifying aberrancy is key to making that distinction. And really, there are. There are so many ways of thinking about what exactly constitutes aberrancy. So, for instance, I sometimes think of it as, you know, using the drug for for too long or for an indication not otherwise sanctioned. So, you know, instead of using four endones a day, I have to use five or six. And then instead of using four endones a day for my bad back, I, I also use it because I get a headache. So there's that kind of, you know, there's that kind of pushing the boundaries of what is actually sanctioned. And then we can think about, you know, one step further where there's actually, well, I'm actually using my granny's endone as well as the stuff you're giving me. And so we're using on top. And then you can push out the aberrancy boat a little bit further and think, well, I'm now buying it off the streets. And then maybe I'm crushing it and snorting it because it works better. And then maybe I'm injecting it. And so there's a kind of a, a journey into aberrancy. But another type of aberrancy that, that unfortunately some patients uh, demonstrate is that kind of manipulative behavior that, that doctors might encounter when, they're, when, when patients are trying to get prescription opioids or prescription any, or, you know, other prescriptions for non-medical use, for non-sanctioned use. Have you had experience of that, Philippe? I have, and it can be quite discomforting and it can make one yeah. feel quite awkward. And a lot of the time, uh, one can feel that, uh, that your boundaries are being pushed and you feel very uncomfortable. And that's usually an indication to me that something's going on anyway. And I think we've talked about this through many episodes, but it's important to have reasons why you do anything and it's important to have pretty clear boundaries in medicine and especially with regards to prescribing. So I'm always happy to try and help a patient. I'm always trying to meet a patient halfway, but I'm not willing to compromise on safety and I'm not willing to compromise on my rules regarding prescribing. So if something comes up against that, then I will usually explain why I may or may not be able to assist and either mm. offer an alternative or offer at least a pathway forward. So I think it's important to be very clear where you stand in regards to prescribing. And I usually find that kind of decreases the chances of situ situations escalating out of control. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I totally agree with you. I think, I think doctors need to be safe. I mean, it doesn't say first please the patient. It says... The, the first medical principle is premium non-knockery, which means first do no harm. So we have to have that as a core tenet in our, in our clinical practice. Do not do any harm. And so that's where we must maintain boundaries. So what does it look like? What are the features of someone uh, trying to manipulate doctors to 
lower their boundaries or maybe acquiesce to the request for a prescription? What does that look like to you? Well, Fergal, I think you have a pretty good acronym for this, don't you? The Use Talk acronym for prescription drug aberrancy. Yes. Could you share that with us? So I, you know, I was trying to conceptualize, you know, the the, the presentations that, that that patients can sometimes uh, give us for for manipulative behavior. And yeah, use talk I came up with. So urgency, splitting, efficacy, timing, allergies, lost, and knowledge. So urgency, you know, what do you think about urgency, Philippe? And I've got to have this script now. You know, can't do without it. I've got to have it right now. Have you come across that? Yes, and usually that's a red flag. And I usually ask, why now? Why particularly now? Or if you've missed it for a few days, okay, so you've missed it for a few days, why why do you need it today? And you really can't be, for lack of a better term, sucked into the patient's urgency or agenda. It's important when things are getting more strained, when you're feeling time pressure, where you're feeling harried, that we take a deep breath we slow down and we think mm. about why we're doing something and we think about yeah. why our prescribing safe. The disaster, and I think you've mentioned it before, Fergal, is 5 p.m. on a Friday, someone comes in, I need my usual script and I need it now. We've got the yeah. weekend, we've got no follow-up. This is a recipe yeah. for disaster. So yeah. if there's nothing else uh, that, that you remember from urgency, don't be pushed into artificial urgency prescription yeah. dispensing is not urgent. Someone having a heart attack in front of you is, is urgent, but yes. dispensing a prescription, uh, in my opinion, is never urgent. Yeah. Then we've got splitting. What is splitting and how does it look like? Splitting is usually comparing uh, a doctor to someone else or uh, idealizing someone else and uh, denigrating you. So for example, if a patient saw you and then saw me and they would be saying something along the lines of, if I were to refuse a prescription, Dr. Armstrong would always do the script. He's an excellent yeah. doctor. So why yeah. can't you do the same as him? Yeah. Are you saying he's yeah. wrong? Are you saying you're right and he's wrong? Something yeah. along those lines where there's the yeah. either the uplifting of a doctor or the denigration, basically. Yeah. yeah. And I think it really speaks to the fact that, that doctors who work in together in practice have got to have shared protocols, shared policies, and shared boundaries. It's really hard to maintain your own boundary-driven practice if everyone around you has got different, different agendas and different levels of commitment to clinical boundaries, which is why everyone's got to be on the same hem sheet, and there has to be a clear practice policy if, we're, if, you're, if you're thinking about working in this field. Then efficacy. So, doctor, nothing else but Andone works for my back pain. What do you think about that? It's a difficult one to negotiate with the patient just because it's a conversation that takes a long time. We know rationally that this is not true, but talking to the patient, bringing the patient on board is a discussion that sometimes takes a couple of consultations, maybe more than a couple of consultations. So by definition, we have a complicated situation in front of us and the resolution is expected to be done by the patient in a five-minute consult, which is not possible. So what I try and say to a patient in a situation such as this is the guidelines with regards to, say, opioid use for chronic non-cancer pain are that this is an ineffective medication. It's associated with a lot of harms. It can actually make your pain worse. And I don't feel comfortable prescribing this medication for you. 
for this reason. Yeah. These are the treatments and therapies that I can offer you and I'm happy to follow you through. And I certainly believe that you're in pain and I'm very happy to try and treat your pain holistically and work with you along this. But I don't feel I can prescribe this medication because I think it will do more harm and I do not want to do you any harm. And that's sure. kind of the spiel that I use, variations of that, but that's the general yeah. gist of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think you've just got to go back to evidence-based medicine. Uh, if people start saying that the only thing that works for my symptom is a drug that I that you're not comfortable prescribing, and we have yes. T for timing, and we've already, I suppose, talked about the the terrible situation of the five o'clock on a Friday just before a bank holiday or Thursday five o'clock before a long weekend, and you know someone just flying in and. Uh, you know, their usual GPs in a different state and you can't get hold of anyone, of course. So, you know, timing, when, when patients deliberately time presentations to make it difficult to actually corroborate their history, that can be a problem. And then we have allergies. I'm allergic to everything, including anti-inflammatories. So you can't give me anti-inflammatories for my bad back. I've already on, I'm already on Panadol, so you have to give me an opioid. What do you think about that? Again, uh, I'd be skeptical. Uh, there are some patients who are allergic to certain medications, so I'm not trying to diminish that as well. But again, this is a red flag and it does give me pause to consider why this is occurring and what exactly the allergy is gearing me towards prescribing. So if it's allergic to XYZ, but I'm not allergic to B, for example, that's, that's an interesting pattern and you'd have to tease that out. And this sometimes takes a bit of time. But again, the principles of safe prescribing come in as well. Is this a medication I'm comfortable prescribing? Is this a medication that I have experience with? Do I feel the patient meets the indications for the medication? And can I justify that this is safe? If yeah. I can't answer those questions in my own head, then I don't feel I have uh, any role prescribing the medication. And I will try and offer the patient, as mentioned earlier, the help that I can offer the patient, which may not be the medication they've prescribed, but alternatives or non-medication treatment, which is usually first line for pain or other things and mm -hmm. see how we go. But yeah. the rule here is try and be as safe as you can and don't feel pushed into prescribing a medication you're not comfortable prescribing. Yeah, and on that particular note on allergies, I people who say that they're allergic to anti-inflammatories or that they cannot tolerate anti-inflammatories because they've got asthma, you can always use a COX-2 inhibitor. So celecoxib is specifically uh, a, a, an anti-inflammatory that can be used in people who are intolerant of other NSAIDs because of asthma. So that's always a useful thing to know. And we've got L for lost scripts. Doctor, I've lost my script. It's not so much an issue these days but with um, uh, electronic prescribing, is it? But it used to be really quite difficult to prove that someone, someone's dog didn't actually eat the prescription. What, what do you say to lost scripts? I used to have contracts with my patients on certain medications and one of the conditions on the contract was that loss scripts would not be replaced. So yeah. I used to try and uh, nip the potential problem in the bud. Uh, and I usually find in terms of prescribing medications or at least putting patients on behavioral contracts or medication contracts can sometimes eliminate the, the gray zones that might exist. If a script has legitimately been lost, that's fair enough. But usually I would tread warily and I would yeah. usually ask for some evidence that the script had been lost or some proof yeah. of, of that the script had been lost. 
but yeah. I did try and make it very clear that uh, lost scripts would not be replaced. Yeah. Then we have K for knowledge. Patients who have an incredible amount of knowledge, detailed knowledge about the pharmacology of the drug they are requesting, I, 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 that makes me feel uncomfortable. How, how do you feel about that? I am sometimes uncomfortable, and sometimes our patients do have a lot of knowledge, uh, sometimes more yeah. knowledge than us in certain areas as well. But it is, yeah. again, a flag that how did this patient acquire this knowledge and why are they so knowledgeable in this particular area? Yeah, is area? that saliency for that drug? Is that, is that a manifestation of drug saliency, you know, having such Absolutely. knowledge? I mean, I, I've got no problem with patients having knowledge about their medical condition and the, the way that their condition should be treated because, quite frankly, patients know, sometimes know more about their condition than I do and always patients are expert in their own suffering. But to meet someone who's requesting endone or opioids for their chronic back pain and they know everything about opioids and, and mu receptors, if people start talking to me about it, you know, I, I want this mu receptor agonist because it's the only thing that works for my pain. It, it is a, it's a bit of a flag for me. Absolutely. Yeah. So in the episode today, we've covered quite a bit of uh bit of information really we've gone through the whole gamut of substances that one can be dependent or addicted to you've given us a couple of great mnemonics on the different substances that there are use disorders for and you've given us this great use talks acronym on how to identify people who are at risk of prescription drug aberrancy so again another information laden episode of cracking addiction so i hope you, dear listener and viewer, will join us for another episode of Cracking Addiction, but bye for now.